runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 130 with guest Dana Epp. Recorded Friday, September 18th, 2009. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. With me, as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Uh, that would be me. How are you? I'm well, sir, and ready to do another run-ass. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, glad to be here. It's We're always having fun, and uh, the technology just keeps rolling on. And uh, I brought back our good friend, Dana Epp. Hey, Dana. Hey, how's it going, guys? Our most recorded guest as of this moment, I think. This oh, really? <laughs> now I feel privileged. Fourth or fifth show, man. It's something. In 120, that's, that's a lot of shows. Welcome our co-host, Dana Epp. <laughs> <laughs> two more and you get the you, you get the plaque i think oh excellent just uh, give me the beer that'd be enough you're all about the beer there you go i uh i was i saw you a, a few weeks ago and we were chatting about technology as we are want to do and you said something along the lines of direct access changes everything it does it's it does. Just, it's a whole new world and this is the combination of windows 7 and 2008 r2 so, so what is it? Yeah, you better start at the beginning. What is it? Well, let, let me let me turn the the table for a second, and let me let me ask you one question. You guys obviously do a lot of uh, of moving around the world, and you need to get access to data resources at the office. How yes. do you do that now? Yep. My life is one crappy VPN connection after another. There yeah, you mine go. Too. User initiated VPN. Right, so you got the issue that sometimes, especially you, Richard, with a lot of places you go overseas, I'm pretty sure that sometimes those VPNs don't work very well because the hotels don't support all the different protocols, and in many cases you might have to use SSL VPNs because it's just you know it's ugly. It is. More importantly, you're moving a lot around the world, and I'm sure your IT team must just hate your PC. Yeah, mostly because yeah, because I'm the IT team and I hate myself. There you go. Well, see, here's the reality. User-initiated VPN has one problem, and that is that those machines that are out in the field simply aren't under a protection scope that can be managed and maintained inside the office very well. Even with things like NAP enforcement, which can allow you to quarantine and control, if you've been on the road for three months and your system hasn't had the right patches in place and you try to connect back to the network and you've got a NAP enforcement policy in place and now you've got to push down 100, 300 megs of patches before you can get access to that file you were trying to get in the first place, yeah. You can be very upset because you've got to sit there and wait an hour while it comes across the VPN to remediate and reboot your system just so you can reconnect just to get that file. Yep. And that becomes a real problem. Now enter Microsoft. Microsoft has decided uh, they had seen that this type of VPN solution, although great, like don't get me wrong, I love VPN. I use it all the time. But there's a better way to do this, and that is that we need to try to find a way to, so that we can treat remote PCs as if they're in the land. If we can do that, then we have all the controls that we normally have under group policy and active directory and, and, and to, to keep it remediated and up to date. Well, that's where direct access comes into play because what it does, if you have Windows 7, Enterprise, or Ultimate, you can connect up to a Windows Server 2008 R2 system with direct access, and it treats it as an always-on connection as if it's a node in the network. 
So what happens is, is that you're actually turning your entire network paradigm on a dime. And instead of treating your assets as resources that are having to be managed and maintained uh, inside the network, we're re-perimeterizing it and saying, my network's no longer the building I'm in, but where my users and assets are. So now, all of a sudden, what happens is the Windows 7 machines are communicating with the office at all times through an IPsec connection at the machine level. So even before a user logs on, if he's connected to the Internet and the machine is aware and can talk to that system as it's booting up, it can get policy from the server. So it can get control and you have updates. So the system can always be patched. It can always be maintained. Policy changes that occur in the org apply to these remote PCs. And here's the power and cool part of this. It means that you're always connected to the network. So resources and outlook for those internal SharePoint sites, those links just work. The patches that just got deployed to the LAN have been deployed to you while you're at that Starbucks. You don't even know about it. It just happens because there is a network, lower-level network connection of always being connected to the LAN. And that's what direct access is. It treats your remote PC like you're inside the office. I'd like at this moment to hand you over to my security guy for crucifixion. (laughs) (laughs) But see, here's the thing. It's, It's a balancing act, right? But here's the component to it. Remote users that come in through user-initiated VPN are just as much of a risk, or if, if anything, they're actually more at risk. And let me tell you why. When you're doing user-initiated VPN, the attack surface is, is what's called transient risk. In other words, the risk is no longer about the perimeters I have at my main office. It's about what is now on that remote PC. If that remote PC hasn't been patched and hasn't been up to date, it becomes vulnerable. So even though I might have a secure tunnel between the laptop and my office, yes, that's really strong. I have squishy ends, and I'm just going to attack the remote machine and then go through the secure conduit. So what it really becomes is a secure conduit of attack. Whereas if I have it under control through direct access, I can apply all the standard um, security policy I have in place with Active Directory, which is something I won't have through user-initiated VPN. And more importantly, because it's all driven via IPv6 and through IPsec, I can now have things like domain and server isolation so that I can say this remote PC, when remote, can only access these three machines. Whereas that's, that, although it is possible to do that at the firewall level for remote access, normally it is extremely difficult to do. This becomes really, really easy because now we can use all the benefits of IPsec across the entire net, uh, inside and outside of the network. And that becomes a better way of managing security policy. And you know what? I can't crucify on that. You're absolutely right. Dana, do you remember a couple years ago the big buzzword in this, the IT security was uh, deperimeterization? Remember that? Yeah. Yep. And that yep. there was everybody was talking about deperimeterization, how you know the perimeter is going away. I like I like the re-perimeterization idea. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't crucify on this. is This is where we need to be and where we need to go. Fact of the matter is, is that we have displaced workers and workers that are working from home. I work out of a home office, right? And I have to do a you know do a classic VPN connection in. And uh, you're absolutely right. This is this is a way to make things work better and to be more secure. Yeah, and what's really nice is if you take a look at the, uh, the industry trends and how it works now today, what happens is any time we need an application to work, what do we do? We have to pierce yet another port or another access, or we use what I call the universal firewall bypass protocol. 
Port 80. FSL. <laughs> yep, exactly. Four four three you know, eighty. We, we try to do everything across there where we have no control or management, and, and that becomes really, uh, really, really difficult. Now, you know, with direct access, it's not an all-or-nothing game. You can still use things like um, uh, IAG, like the Intelligent Application Gateway, to do that SSL VPN kind of stuff in sure. a Windows world. But, you know, and, and for machines that can't take advantage of direct access, like those XP machines and, and those, uh, those non-Windows machines, they can still have these other solutions. But what's really nice about the direct access is it gives your users that always-on experience, and that's the critical component. It's really difficult to teach users to use VPN correctly, or they'll get their email and they'll click on a link and it just sits there, spins forever. Oh, yeah, I forgot. i got to turn on my tunnel. Um, this goes away. Their, 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 their education is just work on it like you're in the office. They don't notice or act any differently, and you get all the policy and control that's in there. And what's nice is that what we're doing is we're, when we say we're re-perimeterizing the net, what we're really talking about is we got to put the security boundaries around those critical assets, and we right. can treat local users as remote users. And that's what I like. And a lot of people think that's a little anal, but it's really true. No, Even inside true. the network, we want to rethink the security strategy. Do they really need access to those assets? Do we need to really give them full, unabridged control? That's how things like Slammer and, and all these other types of worms ha- have caused lots of problems because they exactly. propagate across systems in ways they're not supposed to because we're just too lax in security. If we change it around and say we want to put the perimeters around the assets and then we treat local users and remote users the same, apply the same types of policy sets, we can control everything the same way. We get a single pane of glass of view through system set or through whatever our monitoring tools might be, how our management's all done. At the end of the day, it actually gives us less work as IT people to accomplish these goals, and we allow our people to have more productivity because they literally do have real, always-on connectivity anywhere, anytime. And that's what we need in a remote world. If you think about it, if you wanted to take this to a future extreme, I can't advocate this yet because, you know, the proof's in the pudding, so to speak. But in an IPv6 world where you could, in theory, everybody could have a public Internet IP, right, then, you know, the whole idea of a perimeter uh, could be virtual perimeter and could be, you know, your your more uh, uh, encapsulated perimeter is around a machine. And then the, the controls really are... Which machines can communicate with with which ones? Which processes can communicate? What doing content inspection, being aware of the data that's being communicated or being moved or being used on a machine? Uh, you know, that's sort of uh, you know, there's a whole area of expertise, data leakage prevention, right? Um, yep. But all of these things start to become aware of each other, and you know, with the technology that's out there, by sort of doing that, let's take what we have and start to put it together. Um, and especially with IPv6 and you know and and the security that goes along with with that uh, IPsec and other, it's it's not impossible anymore. Right, and then the security becomes about the identity of the user and where they are. It's that question of you are who you say you are, and we can authorize what you're allowed to do, no matter where you are, how you are. It just it, it moves everything away from the old paradigm and allows you to say you need access to these type of resources. We can give them to you because we know what you're right. permitted to do. And it's and that's what I like. And you can see that there's other things. You know, you know, I'm very passionate about identity management and, and things like well, Geneva that became you know ADFS and all these other components, right. and right. they all just start layering on top of each other. And and that's what I really like about this whole scenario. So where does IPv6 fit into all this? So, so interestingly enough, to make this work, especially with the IPsec layer and everything else that's on there, IPv6 is a requirement. Now, when I say it's a requirement, I'm not saying the entire org has to be running IPv6, but the endpoints do. And, and by default, Windows 7 and Windows Server 2008 R2 have IPv6 in play. So we right. use IPv6 at the ends. 
points. That's how it all works. And then if you have a net that's using IPv6, great. It'll just take advantage of it. If not, Microsoft has these uh, fallbacks so that how it actually works is it'll try to use native uh, IPv6. And if that's not available, it'll come back to what's called 6 to 4, which is uh, a protocol that allows that to occur. And if that doesn't work, it comes down to something called Teredo, which you might have heard before, which allows those connectivities between us across an IPv4 network. And then if that doesn't work, it then goes through, you know, the universal bypass protocol. It goes through IP HTTPS. Now, it's not like those SSL VPN kind of solutions where you've got to go to a web page and fill it all in. It's It's a very thin layer of SSL. SSL, that's just basically just another header, right? So you know how you go Ethernet frame, IP frame, you just basically are just putting another layer in there and just saying encapsulate it yeah. all over SSL. When it gets to the other side, we'll just bring it down and then we'll put it back across the net in IPv6. And what's interesting, one of the things I had presented at Tech Days a while back when, when I was presenting on this was I was showing and talking about the fact that people have this myth that you have to have IPv6 on every single machine. And that's not true because if you have like a a Windows Server 2003 box, which might not have an IPv6 stack installed, you can use things like NAT-PT devices, which are um, protocol translation devices that will convert an IPv6 address space into an IPv4 in a way that's uh, NATed. And so you, you, can, you can continue to use those systems across uh, a direct access uh, enabled network. And what's interesting, I think, as IT folk, this is a bit of a digression, is we look for reasons to not have to think about a technology. So, yeah. like, for me, when I hear IPv6, I think, oh, okay, my network's not up to that, so I can't think about direct access. It's just not important to me, which is why I brought it up. Is so, But there is, it doesn't matter what I'm running in my network. doesn't matter, you know, what my gateways look like or anything like that. This technology is going to find a way over the network. Yep, yep. Hey, had you, have you, you guys have used uh, Vista before. Have you guys ever used that application in it called Meeting Space? No. No? Uh, yes. This is a really cool um, application, screen sharing application that uh, Microsoft has built right in the Vista called uh, Meeting Space. And the reason right. I bring it up, and it sounds, seems like a tangent, but it brings back the fact that it's an application that actually runs over IPv6. And there's lots of people that try it out, and they spin up Meeting Space, and they connect up, and they're sharing screens and docs and all this kind of stuff. And they're like, wow, this works so great. And what they don't realize is it's using IPv6. Both nodes are running IPv6 and handled it and communicated over the net, and you didn't even know it. So, yeah, point being, IPv6 just works, uh, even if it's not necessarily doing what you think it would be doing, working end to end. It it does find a way to work on existing networks. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but there, especially in the early days of Vista, there were lots of people turning off the IPv6 stack. Well, you know what's actually funny is as what what they don't know they do like I've actually seen so so I spent a lot of time in the small business world and especially things like small business server two thousand and eight and uh, it was funny because a lot of people thought off the default when they deployed it that they could just turn off IPv six and you can't do that on two thousand and eight doesn't work very well and uh, all of a sudden people are like well why why I just want to turn it off I don't need it it's like well you know what there's lots of systems that do now right play nice you know just play nice. And uh, I, I think that's just about education. And, and one thing I had that saw at Tech Days is um, more than probably three-quarters of the people in that room, um, IPv6 was new to them. And uh, uh, so we have actually, Microsoft's going to get together. We're going to probably do a webinar or something on that and teach IPv6 to everybody because uh, I think a lot of people want to understand how it works. And the, the big garbly goop that they see, the big, long, you know, colonized uh, string is it's really just hex values that are representative of what we used to think of, you know, 192.168.1.45. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's just a lot longer because the scape is bigger, right? There's only a certain amount 
number of IPs that could fit in um, in the IPv4 world, and they made it significantly larger in, in the IPv6. So these people just need to understand how it works. And uh, in time, it'll come. But the nice thing is, is a lot of Microsoft technologies have been built on it, so it'll just work out of the box, and you don't need to know a lot about it. Well, I also think we've forgotten what IPv4 was like in the late 90s before mm-hmm. I, CIDR really kicked in and, and IPs became terrifying because we were yeah. doing everything we could to scavenge them. When we go to IPv6, you're essentially going to be carrying around on your machine a, a permanent identifier. Like There's so much capability that comes out of it naturally yep, when we have yep. that sort of stability with uh, IP addresses. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that's the thing. Everything should have an IP. It's just a matter of how do you put that and what what space can you put it in. A lot of people don't realize that we actually ran out of IP addresses back in, what was it, 96? If every single person had an IP without NAT, we would have exhausted all the IP space already. Yep. So, you know, we've already had to find solutions to get around that, which is the whole point of what things like NAT were invented for. And IPv6 is just uh, something that's a lot better because we had redesigned, or it was designed specifically for the Internet in mind, uh, especially when it relates to all the number of devices that are coming on. You know, we're not just talking PCs here. Pretty much anything that can talk on a network. So, you know, it's those Windows mobile devices. It's those toasters. You know, whatever it is, at the end of the day, it's going to have a device ID, an IP address, basically, and, and you want to be able to communicate with it. And uh, that's important. You know, we did a great show. I think it's really, it's one of my favorite shows. I have several favorite shows, but it's one of them with... Uh, Sean Seiler from Microsoft, who is, uh, or at least at the time, was a program manager for IPv6 there at Microsoft, and it was like somewhere around show number 50 or so. Um, it, the, the IPv6 world is just really important for IT people to know about. That's one that's worth going back and looking for, I think. Uh, I know I've gone back and listened to it a couple of times You know, over the last... It's pr- hasn't it been more than a year since we talked to Sean? Yeah, more than a year, and I, I keep yeah. looking for more... Uh... Uh, IPv6 shows because I do think it's an important topic. Uh, there's not a lot of people that conversant on it yet. Yeah, we should. Maybe, you know, it might be good to have Sean back on and have him talk about that. Oh, and, and sidebar for people that may not be aware is uh, remember the first I'm a PC commercials that came out, and there was like the PC guy that looks like the PC guy from the Apple commercial. Yeah, remember that? That's John. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I remember I saw that and I'm looking at that commercial and I'm like. Uh, that guy, he looks familiar. <laughs> so, but um, I mean the the IPv6. There's a lot of learning to do, isn't there, Dana? When it comes to IPv6, it's not like oh, yeah. IPv4. I mean, there no, there's, no, there's a lot it's more it. complex. What's interesting is there's lots of identifiers and things inside it to understand what kind of. Uh you know, what kind of system is this and how does it all work right. together? And, and you can take a look and uh, if you understand the string, there's a lot of interesting uh, information inside it that you need to understand and, and, and setting it up and configuring it. And then there's complementary technologies that work like IPsec together with IPv6 is a very strong combination. And, right. and, and understanding it, knowing it just really will make you a better rounded IT pro that could take advantage of what you probably already have in your infrastructure and you don't even know it. And I, I mean, I can spend a weekend reading books and kind of get my head around IPv4. IPv6, uh, maybe I'm just getting older, but I, I really think, I mean, IPv6 is substantially more complex. You know, it, it, it really does take some time and some learning to, to understand it in its entirety. Yeah, I, I can't deny that. Yeah, no, it's definitely not, you know, it's not light reading. Remember when we first tried to learn CIDR, the whole masking thing and going down to single two or three IPs? Like, that was not easy to learn either. No, no. Well, remember when, you went, when the day you moved from Token Ring to um, Ethernet and you had to deal with IP, you know, everyone was freaked out. Yeah. 
right? Now we're coming to the next level of that, and yeah. it's just gonna it's gonna keep going. And and but the good thing is, and I think this is there is a lot more people out there to help each other and and add value. Like you know, I, I you know um, I, when when Sean did his session on there, there was you know some interesting conversations that that happened on there. But you then go past that, you could see. Since then, there's been a lot of conversations from everything from Edge, um, you know, the uh, video casts to uh, lots of the stuff being documented on how to do it. And, you know, back then, I think it's just become because the number of IT pros that exist now and need to use this stuff are significantly increasing. There's lots of people with experience that can help us to understand how to really take advantage and use this stuff. I don't think it's about sitting in a fiscal class to learn how to do IPv6. I think a lot of it is understand what our systems are now, how do we enable these IPv6 networks, and how can we see that in our current orgs. And so things like, you know, I, I joke around about meeting space, but it's really a good indicator. Hey, I can just spin up two applications on two different machines that had an IPv6 stack in place, and they're just going to talk. Yeah, now, it just how, works. How did that happen? Yeah. How did that happen? No, did you set up an IPv6 network? Do you have a special DHCP server that's automatically uh, issuing different IP schemas for the IPv6? How come it just worked? You know? Do an IP yeah. config and take a look at the ugliness that you see there when you've got IPv6 in play. Learn what that means. And that's, that's going to come. It's, it's a matter of time. Yeah. And My home office router does IPv6 and IPv4 both, you know, and, and I have. I mean, I've there's been times when I've spent and I sort of start digging around. It's really pretty fascinating. I mean, there's just a lot of really good, cool stuff that comes along with IPv6. Oh, yeah, for sure. And for those that, you know, have environments that just aren't going to work and they need some areas and maybe they need a certain uh, network segment to work IPv6, like I said, there's NAT PT devices specifically that allow you to route through there. And um, it used to be these devices were really expensive, but now Cisco IOS actually has NAT PT built into it. I think it's version 12.2, I think is about right where it was. So that means those those low-end Cisco 800 devices that are like 200 bucks, they, they completely support IPv6 and with the PT. So if you've got some of those devices that just aren't going to speak IPv6 anytime soon. Like, uh, you know, those uh, Windows 2000 boxes, well, fine, put it over on the other side of it and you'll continue and, and the IPT stuff will take care of it and allow it all to run for you. So how much do I really need to know about IPv6 to make direct access work? Well, you're going to have a little bit of knowledge because you're going to need to know how to use things like ISOTAP and have things configured on both ends. But here's the great thing. By default, on installation of Windows 7 and of Windows Server 2008 R2, IPv6 is already set up and in play for you. So in theory, it should just work. You don't have to know anything. Yeah, well, you're going to need to have a little bit of a knowledge. There's a couple things you have to do to set up, like ISOTAP in your um, DNS records and stuff like that so that it can do proper reverse lookups. And take so what's an ISOTAP? Well, ISOTAP is one of those big acronyms. You know, it's it's the Intrasite Automatic Tunnel Addressing Protocol, which basically will take an IPv6 um, address and allow it to run across an IPv4 network. And so by default, that's how you're going to be able to talk on your standard IPv4 network and have a Windows 7 device talk to a Windows Server 2008 device or two Vista devices that are going to communicate to, um, you, you know, talk IPv6. Cool. So in the under so in device manager when I see the ISOTAP adapter that's what that is that's that bridging device okay gotcha it, it requires that you have to have an IPv4 net as well because it's you know it's a dual stack node right so it sits there and sure. says okay sure. I need I got an IPv6 address I got to go to an IPv6 address but I have an IPv4 network there how am I going to make that happen and ISOTAP's designed to do that tunnels the IPv6 across the IPv4 cool. Uh, and I also obviously I need 2008 R2 on the server side of this for the DA component. Um, that, that's the only that, that is definitely an R2 component. Um, right. 
but uh, the rest of the net, like your your certificate authority and your DNS and all that kind of stuff, that can that can run on Windows Server 2008. So if I'm an IT shop person and I want to give this a try, you know, just to try to learn about it, install it, and um, and see how I might be able to use it in my environment, what what do I need to do? What what should I plan for here? You know, I, in in my opinion, Microsoft has some really good hands-on labs. And uh, what I would suggest is, I'm a big fan of testing in a virtualized environment. You're going to spin up three machines. You're going to spin up a uh, Windows Server 2008 domain controller, which is going to have DNS on there with a certificate authority. Then what you're going to do is spin up a Windows Server 2008 R2 that's going to have direct access on it. And then you're going to spin up a Windows 7 Enterprise or Ultimate VM. And then what you're going to be able to do is you're going to have those all domain joined together. You're going to, the direct access box needs to have two NICs. And basically, you're going to have one that's going to you know, allow it to be on your external net so you can play around a little bit. And then at the end of the day, you're going to um, uh, set up a poly- uh, uh, security group inside of the uh, uh, domain that you're going to assign that computer to. You're going to assign that security group to direct access make a couple changes in the DNS. All This is all in a really simple hands-on lab, very easy to, to test. And then you're going to disconnect it from the domain and you're going to put it on the outside interface and then you're going to see a DA connection just just happen. And, uh, of, of course, that's if you follow the directions and do it right. <laughs> but um, that's the way to do it, as, as you can take a look at there. And then once you're confident that it makes sense to you, it's easy to roll that out. And a lot of times, a lot of the infrastructure already in play in, a lot, in these organizations, we'll take advantage of it. You just need to snap in that R2 box and, and of course, deploy Windows 7 Enterprise um, or Ultimate. And that'll give you the ability to make that happen. Do I have to have the Win 7 box inside the network to set this up, or can I do the whole thing remote? The initial provisioning has to be done. Uh, well, it doesn't have to be in the net, because you can always do network provisioning over a VPN. So you could actually have a machine that's not even domain-joined. You could have it VPN in, domain-join it, allow it to get do a force, a GP update force, to get the policies to get deployed out to you for the DA side of it, and so the system becomes DA-aware. And then as soon as you disconnect from the VPN, DA will spin up and uh, be able to take advantage of what needs to be done. And let me tell you, I would not miss that VPN client. I find the Microsoft VPN clients obnoxious. Like, it pops over top of anything when it loses a connection. Uh, I find... uh, And then then you get in the whole, oh, I'm running 64-bit OS, and Cisco, for some reason, just doesn't make a 64-bit VPN client. Yep, yep. And that's what I like with DA is just, you know, in the bottom right corner on Windows 7, it just tells you when you're, you know, connected to the network with the Internet. This one's just going to say, uh, you know, it's going to tell you it's connected direct access to the to the network. Right. So you'll, you, will be a, you will act and feel as if you're in the network. It'll just be a little slower depending where you are. You know, one, I guess one question. I mean, I know I use uh, my current VPN client of use is a checkpoint VPN client, right, to a, to a checkpoint, you know, concentrator. Um, but I'm using uh, RSA tokens usually if I'm remote to access this particular network. So um, is there a direct access story for doing multi-factor authentication? Yeah, so by default, built right into direct access, it has complete two-factor authentication support with smart cards. So if you've got the ability to have smart card configurations, it'll work on there. If that's not available, what I recommend, and of course, you know, our own company does two-factor authentication solutions, um, is to run a credential provider on the Windows 7 machine itself and add the two-factor authentication to the Windows logon. Because what you're doing is enforcing the identity at the machine, at the uh, login level of the machine, and then allowing the normal network to control everything else based off of your identity for, um, you know, through the IPsec layer of things. Right. 
I, I guess I'm thinking I like I like to do the fingerprint thing or or something you know or a card or some kind of for the machine, but I'm I'd also like to have something that that uh, prevents me from accessing anything outside of the machine. Well, we're, we're, we're definitely working with Microsoft right now on a solution for that because obviously we have an invested uh, reason to do so. <laughs> but um, uh, as it stands right now, that their, their integration for multi-factor authentication is through smart card technology. Well, and of course, Microsoft uses smart cards, so it makes yeah, sense. Yeah, right? and that's why, right? They, they, they dog-fooded uh, direct access themselves in their own org, and you know, there's a lot of reasons um, for, you know, they have a lot of remote workers that need to get access to, to yep. Redmond uh, Corplan, and, and uh, they went through all the pains of, you know, a 50,000 user network, and actually, I think it's larger than that. I don't, know, I don't know what they had to do with the number of nodes that need to get on the DA, but I, I know pretty much every Microsoft employee I talk to, every blue badge has got, is on the DA net now, and is just loving it. And, uh, uh, you know, they've got a larger net to deal with than, than a lot of people, and um, interestingly enough, it just it works. And that's good. It's very cool. I guess one of the concerns I would have then is uh, stolen laptops just dropping straight into the network. Well, you know, at the end of the day, you know, there's complementary security technologies that are in play here. Like stolen laptops still should be protected by things like BitLocker, right? There should be a TPM in there and it should be encrypting the drive and making sure that the data cannot be touched. And um, the thing with direct access is you can tie NAP enforcement health check rules in there. Actually, it does by default. It's just a matter of is, is it an enforcement rule set or is it just a monitoring rule set? Right. So you still have all the controls of, of network access protection to be able to say, is this machine in health? And more importantly is not only will you be able to check and validate that it's got the right health ticket, um, you're also going to be able to uh, be assured that they've uh, uh, got all the other policy in play, which is not something you normally get with a VPN connection because, you know, it's a, it's a hit and miss thing. Will policy get p- deployed when that tunnel comes up in time um, to allow enforcement? Where this happens with a separate IPsec tunnel at the machine level using machine certificates, that's the whole point you need a certificate authority for, is that right. it has a machine level understanding. That is the machine I think it is, and I can deploy policy to it. Sure. And if you revoke that certificate, then obviously that it's no longer valid. When setting up, is you, your certificate authority has to have a revocation uh, list uh, available so that gotcha. you can, for obvious reasons, very easily revoke these machines if you need to. What I think is really cool, though, is because you've got a machine-level connection, you can do some interesting things like wipe the PC even before a person logs on. If, it's, if someone plugged it into a network and it's talking, it's called home, you can say, hey, you know what? We don't trust the machine anymore. Wipe it. And it will get wiped. And Interesting. Cool. Pretty cool. What does direct access management look like? It, it, you treat it no different because you, what, you, once you configure the group that the person's in there and you've done the initial setup, it's actually kind of cool. The direct access has this really nice wizard. It's a four step wizard of set up the security groups that need to apply it to, set up how um, the DA is supposed to work, what resources, where the domain controller is, where the certificate authority is, you know, how, what are the SSL certs that are going to be used in play, and then you basically set up the application servers, and then finally, as part of that wizard, it asks you, would you like to create you know, some IPsec rules and do things like uh, server and domain isolation and you know, those yeah. components to it to make you, you know, give you the ability to uh, control right down to the individual uh, machine level if you have to. Once that's done, though, the rest of it, um, it just is tr- because it's treated and, and, in, and is viewable as a, as, a, as a PC on the net, your current management and monitoring tools and a system center is a perfect example for this. It just comes under management. So you're going to see it the way you want it. It's going to work. And th- that means that there is no separate management that you have to do on the DA side of things. But interestingly enough, with Windows 7, one thing Microsoft did do is one problem IT pros have all the time with VPNs is 
how come it's not working? Is it because there's a, the hotel is blocking the firewall port? Is it because configuration is wrong? Is the user entering passwords wrong? Well, with Windows 7, outside of just DA, if you actually right-click on the network um, icon in the tray in the bottom right, there's an option there that allows you to says troubleshoot problems. And it'll automatically do things and check to see your health of your network connectivity. But if you actually click on there, um, I have a different problem after it does its normal scan. There's an entire section which is dedicated to direct access. So then what it does is it does a complete dump of everything that's going on on the net. So you get the, you know, the IP config and the system s s uh, configuration and all that stuff. And it also gives you basically a network dump of what's going on, which you can then load into things like Netmon which is a, another free tool that Microsoft provides for you know, network monitoring. And you can load that right up there in a, in a post-analysis point of view so that you can figure out why the user is not able to get connected up. And that's very useful from a diagnostics point of view. Sounds great. Yeah. Dana, we're just about out of time here. Any final words? Direct access is going to change the world. It's uh, going to allow anywhere, everywhere access. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the world move to Windows 7 to take advantage of it. You know, there's not many statements that uh, that take that broad of a scope or that that I would tend to agree with, but uh, this is one that could potentially really truly change the way that business is done I, with computers. I I, I kind of tend to agree. Wow, my two both security guys on the same side. I don't understand this. I'm confused. If you can do it well and do it right, uh, and it enables business, then you know. I mean. There, there are certain. There's not a whole lot of things in the computer world that are no-brainers, but there are a few. And uh, so, as long, long as this all comes true, and as long as it all works out the way that it's, uh, the way that it's intended to, it could, could be a game. Remote productivity the way it's meant to be. Allow people to get access to the resources as they need yep. it, when they need it, in a secure scope that we can control and manage to reduce risk to acceptable levels of business owners and as IT professionals. What more can you ask for? So it could be a game changer for sure. It's all about the love. Dana, thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for the invite. Talk to you later, Dana. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio.